Tonight we're going to talk about humbler, harder, and better. But before we do that, I'd like to try to seek to humble myself before God. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening wanting to hear a word from you. Lord, I'm wanting to give a word from you. I'm not wanting to share my thoughts because I don't trust my thoughts, but I trust your thoughts and your words. So I pray that you will use me and that your spirit will be present here to cut and heal as you know needs to be done. May your name be glorified and may, may we know that we have been in your presence. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. To most 21st century Americans, better equates with bigger, faster, stronger, prettier, more expensive, more popular, more something. This evening, we want to look at how God defines better. And I want to begin by sharing some of our personal story. You know, I grew up wanting to do something big for God. I had a grandfather who was an amazing man, amazingly uh, humble man, but used by God in a powerful way. He was a youth evangelist. In fact, some of you older ones may remember him, Elder E.L. Minchin. And you know, I don't think I ever went to a church with my grandfather without people coming up to him afterwards and saying, Elder Minchin, I know you don't remember me, but you spoke at a week of prayer at our school and my life was changed. And I mean, I've heard that over and over, and, and it really impacted me to know that this man had been used by God to impact hundreds of lives. And so I grew up saying, wow, that's amazing. I want to be able to do that. When we graduated from college, my wife and I thought we were well qualified and well prepared to change the world. We really believed that we had gotten the education, that we had gotten the practical experience, we were involved in a lot of extracurricular activities and that we were ready to go out and be mighty men and women for God. We went to Kenya for six years as teachers, and after our two oldest children were born there, and I can't get into the details of it, 
but we came under conviction on the importance of our family being our first mission field. And that was because we were seeing a lot of missionaries' children. We taught missionaries' children who were really hurting and struggling because their parents had neglected them because they were out saving the world. And we knew there was just something not right. Something didn't equate here. And so we, it drove us to the Bible and to the spirit of prophecy saying, what's going on here? How can we come up with a different outcome? And like I say, we started searching and, and I'll never forget, we had one weekend off, which was rare for us at that school, boarding academy, you know how that is. Uh, and we went to this little guest house. It was some Swedish missionaries that lived near us. And they were, we were good friends and they had this little guest house and we went there and we just poured over the Bible in the spirit of prophecy saying, Lord, show us, teach us. How, where we should go, what we should do. We were actually, at this point, we had, um, we had served six years, and so we were preparing to return to the States, and we were really seeking God as to what we should do. And it was at that weekend, as we were studying, we came across this verse in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. It says, make it your ambition, and this is the NIV, and I know that's not the best one to study theology from, but I love the wording of this. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And that really hit us. It's make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That didn't mesh with, with changing the world. And then we started coming across other things, some quotes. And you know, as I was preparing this, I still have a binder with all my handwritten quotes, and it's very precious to me because that was a very special time in our spiritual walk. And these are some of the quotes we found. The essential lesson of contented industry in the necessary duties of life, however humble, is yet to be learned by the greater portion of Christ's followers. The essential lesson of contented industry in the necessary duties of life. If there is no human eye to criticize our work, nor voice to praise or blame, it should be done just as well as if the infinite one himself were personally to inspect it. Wow. Then... We found this one. Any honest work 
Because again, at this point, we're saying, okay, Lord, we've done this for six years. Um, do we go back to the States and get into another boarding academy? Or do you have another plan for us? Any honest work is a blessing and faithfulness in it may prove a training for higher trusts. However lowly, any work done for God, and this is the key here, with a full surrender of self, is as acceptable to him as the highest service. Wherever we may be, Christ bids us to take up the duty that presents itself. And then, it's, it's a long story. It, it was really actually over a period of about four years that, that we were studying and coming under conviction um, eventually, well, I, I got a job teaching elementary school, and, and it still wasn't meeting our family goals, and so I quit. I turned in my resignation, and then it was like, okay, now what am I going to do? And we felt strongly that the Lord had led us. I'd never encourage anyone to quit your job unless you really believe God is, is guiding and convicting. But we were convicted, and we moved on that conviction. And so I was spending a lot of time with the Lord saying, okay, Lord, I've got a family here. You know, how am I going to support them? How am I going to earn a living? My focus was on earning a living. And you know what God spoke to me? Of course, it wasn't in an audible voice, but it was very, very clear impression. He said, you are not to focus on earning a living. I promised that, right? Matthew 6, 33. You are to focus on service. So we had been uh, studying these scriptures, reading these quotes. God says, focus on service. And it all started gelling in my mind, realizing that it's not really so much what we do, but how we do it. And whether self is surrendered in the doing in fact, I began to see what seemed to be a consistent pattern in the scriptures and the spirit of prophecy that humbler and harder is actually better. And so the Lord put us on the Moses plan. You know what the Moses plan is? Let's look at the life of Moses for a little bit. If the Adventist review had been around in his day, Moses would have been on the front cover. He was someone who had it all. The highest civil and military training, heir to the throne of the most powerful nation on earth. His intellectual greatness distinguishes him above the great men of all ages. As historian, poet, philosopher, general of armies, and legislator, he stands without a peer. Yet with the world before him, he had the moral strength to refuse the flattering prospects of wealth and greatness and fame 
choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So do you get the picture here? Moses now, of course, is, is in the courts of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter. He's gotten all this amazing education, but yet he's staying true to God. He's serving God. He's choosing to call himself a Hebrew instead of an Egyptian. So not only was he great in the world's eyes, but he was also living for God. In spite of all the pressure exerted on him to conform to the Egyptian religion, he remained unshaken in his determination to render homage to none save the one God, the maker of heaven and earth. So he had backbone. He was not going to be swayed. He had vision and the unwavering loyalty to the Hebrew religion. He was the man poised and ready to spring into action as the great deliverer of God's people. He had it all figured out. He knew how many Israelites there were, how many Egyptians there were. He knew the best routes out of Egypt and what it was going to take to hold off the Egyptians long enough to make their escape. He was ready to act. And we know the sad results. In slaying the Egyptian, Moses had fallen into the same error so often committed by his fathers of taking into their own hands the work that God has promised to do. It was not God's will to deliver his people by warfare as Moses thought. Why was it not God's will to do it that way? Because who would have gotten the glory? but by his own mighty power, that the glory might be ascribed to him alone. So instead of a brilliant military revolt against the Egyptians, Moses headed to the wilderness with his tail between his legs. Man would have dispensed with that long period of toil and obscurity, deeming it a great loss of time. You know, great loss of time seems a little understated here. This was a great humanitarian crisis. This was a nation in slavery, suffering, dying, and their leader is off herding sheep for 40 years? Does that not seem like a great loss of time to you? The quote continues. But infinite wisdom called him who was to become the leader of his people to spend 40 years in the humble work of a shepherd. 
No advantage that human training or culture could bestow could be a substitute for this experience. Do you understand that? So let's try to wrap our minds around this. Moses, the Adventist Review Man of the Year, the head elder of his church, Sabbath school teacher with multiple PhDs from Egypt's Harvard University, a five-star general in the Egyptian army with a Nobel Prize in literature, and yet he wasn't prepared to lead God's people out of Egypt? Let's be brutally honest and admit that our education and accomplishments often breed in us feelings of pride and importance that make us feel well qualified to do God's work. Well, I can promise you that your qualifications pale in comparison to Moses'. But we read that no advantage that human training or culture could bestow could be a substitute for his 40 years as a humble shepherd. So why do we keep trying to give our children every advantage of human training and culture? Just buy them some sheep. So what was it that Moses hadn't learned yet? What was it that he had to go to the wilderness for 40 years to learn? I mean, he, he, he'd learned everything Egypt had to offer. He'd had a good family background. His mother had given him a solid background in the scriptures. Well, I guess they didn't have scriptures then. Given him a solid balance in the knowledge of God, nature, um, oral tradition passed down through the patriarchs. Well, let's look at what he learned. First of all, he had a lot he had to unlearn from his time in the palace, he had seen and heard many worldly philosophies that had left deep impressions on his mind. We are told that time, change of surroundings, and communion with God could remove these impressions. Do you have stuff you need to unlearn? Time, change of surroundings, and communion with God, that's the, that's the prescription. But it was a struggle as for life, we are told, to put those things behind him. You know, I know what that struggle is like when you've grown up your whole life believing things and then you go to God's word and inspired counsel and you say, wait a minute, this isn't this isn't connecting. This isn't adding up. So what else did he learn? 
Shut in by the bulwarks of the mountains, Moses was alone with God. Wow, that sounds good to me. Here, his pride and self-sufficiency were swept away. In the stern simplicity, I like that, stern, not just simplicity, stern simplicity of his wilderness life, the results of the ease and luxury of Egypt disappeared. Moses became patient, reverent, and humble. In the school of self-denial and hardship, have, have you all graduated from that school? <laughs> school of self-denial and hardship? He was to learn patience, to temper his passions. Before he could govern wisely, he must be trained to obey. His own heart must be fully in harmony with God before he could teach the knowledge of his will to Israel. Is your heart fully in harmony with God? If it's not, then you haven't graduated yet from the school of self-denial and hardship. Finally, 40 years later, you, I, you know how long 40 years is? <laughs> it's quite a while. It's uh, the majority of my lifetime. Forty years later, after every last vestige of self had died, God told Moses, okay, now you're ready. The divine command given to Moses found him self-distrustful, slow of speech, and timid. He was overwhelmed with a sense of his incapacity to be a mouthpiece for God to Israel. Is that the kind of leader you would choose? Someone who's self-distrustful? Can you do this? Um, I, I don't think I can. <laughs> Slow of speech and timid. Forty years earlier, Moses had thought he had the tiger by the tail. He thought he was the man ready to, to deliver God's people. And now he was totally overwhelmed at the thought. And God says, now you're ready. I wish we had more time to explore other examples from the Bible and history of those who have learned that humbler and harder is better, but let's jump straight to the perfect example. Moses was not the perfect example. He made mistakes. Jesus made no mistakes. What kind of training did he have for his most important mission? Well, I wish we could expand on this more. But he had a quiet and simple childhood. Parents, do you know this quote? Desire of Ages, page 74. The more quiet and simple the life of the child, the more free from artificial excitement. That's prophecy right there. 
free from artificial excitement. And the more in harmony with nature, the more favorable is it to physical and mental vigor and to spiritual strength. That was our motto with our child rearing. And we make no claims to have done it right. But you know why we were able to lead a quiet and simple life? Because we didn't have money to do anything more. <laughs> we didn't have money to go places. We didn't have money to, to have fancy vacations. We had very simple pleasures. Simple pleasures are the best. Parents, I just challenge you, put this on your wall. Read it every day. Because 21st century childhood, for most Americans, is not quiet, it's not simple, it's not free from artificial excitement, and it's not in harmony with nature. And so what kind of results are we going to get? So, Jesus had a quiet and simple childhood because he was poor. He was industrious. The parents of Jesus were poor and dependent upon their daily toil. We call that hand-to-mouth today, right? He was familiar with poverty, self-denial, and privation. That, that kind of hurts a little bit. Privation. I mean, self-denial, you know, that's one thing. But privation? In my mind, privation means going without things you feel like you really need. But he was familiar with it. That's the life he lived growing up. But notice the next sentence. This experience was a safeguard to him. In his industrious life, there were no idle moments to invite temptation. No aimless hours opened the way for corrupting associations. So far as possible, he closed the door to the tempter. Could it be that Jesus needed a humbler harder life to develop his character? And if he needed it, he lived the life of a humble servant. If you have your Bibles, just turn quickly with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. We know how the disciples were always arguing about who was the greatest, who was better, right? Something better. And so in Mark 42, or 10, 42, Jesus calls them to him and says unto them, 
Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. You know, when you're in charge, when you're somebody important, you, you call the shots. You make the commands and everybody else does it, right? That's the way it works in the world. But so shall it not be among you. But whoever will be great among you shall be your minister or your servant. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the God of the universe. Um, you know, if anybody should be ministered unto, it ought to be him, right? But he didn't come to have people saying, what can I do for you? He came to say, what can I do for you? So let me ask you something. How old was Jesus when he first recognized that he was the Messiah? Twelve? That's our understanding that when he went to the, the temple with his, his parents, it dawned on him that that sacrifice being slain there was him. How old was he when he started his public ministry? 30? So children, do your math. What's 30 minus 12? 18. Okay. 18 years. How many of you young people are 18? Okay, we've got a few... Is that a long time? She says no. Seems like when you're 18 that it usually feels like a long time. For 18 years. So let's try to understand this. Jesus realized he was the Messiah at 12. For 18 years. After he gained that understanding. He worked as a carpenter while the world groaned under its burden of guilt and pain. Does that boggle your mind? Let's put it in another way. Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life in quiet, humble labor preparing for three and a half years of public ministry. What's the lesson for us? Look at this. I just want to say for those who are listening to, or will be listening to this on audio verse that I will um, try to make sure that that the PowerPoints get on audio verse, because I'm not taking time to read the 
the sources for all this, but um, the sources are there. Jesus is our example. Do you believe that? Jesus is our example. There are many who dwell with interest upon the period of his public ministry while they pass unnoticed the teaching of his early years. You know, the Gospels, other than a handful of verses, are about his three and a half years of public ministry. But it is in his home life that he is the pattern for most children and youth. All children and youth. For all children and youth. The Savior condescended to poverty that he might teach how closely we in a humble lot may walk with God. He lived to please, honor, and glorify his Father in the common things of life. His work began in consecrating the lowly trade of the craftsmen who toil for their daily bread. Now, this is the kicker here. He was doing God's service just as much when laboring at the carpenter's bench as when working miracles for the multitude. So we read that, but yet, do you feel like you're doing God's service just as much in the humble duties of life as when you're standing up front preaching? or doing some other important thing for God. Which sounds more exciting, laboring in a carpenter's shop or working miracles for the multitude? <laughs> Which sounds more Christian? Which has more danger for pride and self-importance? Here's another quote. The greater part of our Savior's life on earth was spent in patient toil in the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Ministering angels attended the Lord of life as he walked side by side with peasants and laborers, unrecognized and unhonored. He was as faithfully fulfilling his mission while working at his humble trade as when he healed the sick or walked upon the storm-tossed waves of Galilee. So in the humblest duties and lowliest positions of life, we may walk and work with Jesus. It, but it's just that healing the sick and walking upon the storm-tossed waves seems so much so much more important than working at a humble trade. I mean, that's like, you know, that's like real ministry. And that's where the problem lies. To our human thinking and understanding, having your own 501c3 nonprofit ministry where you hold big meetings and knock on hundreds of doors and hand out thousands of tracts and prophesy and cast out devils and do many wonderful works is doing something big for God. But 
it, if, if it's tainted with pride and selfishness, then Jesus is going to say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Moses thought he was going to do something great for God, and God had to show him, no, I want to do something great through you. But first, you have to realize that you have nothing to contribute but an empty vessel, scrubbed and clean and ready to use. Once Moses was emptied of self, which took 40 years of humble shepherding, then God could use him. Jesus came as our example and spent the first 30 years of his life in humble obscurity doing menial labor, living a life of self-denial, poverty, and privation. So what's the take-home lesson for us? Now, I know you're probably thinking, yeah, well, that's all well and good, but we have an urgent message to give to the world. We are supposed to fulfill the gospel commission of Matthew 28, and there's the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. And yes, that is true, and I don't want in any way to lessen the importance of those messages. And I don't in any way want to put down, demean anybody who's out there doing more public ministry. That's not my point. But are the two mutually exclusive? Can we not be fulfilling the Great Commission in our humble lots? You know, God really doesn't need our knowledge and skills and expertise as much as he needs humble vessels emptied of self that he can fill with his spirit. Do you believe that? Yes, we need preachers. Yes, we need medical missionaries. Yes, we need evangelists and doctors and nurses. But we need them to be humbled and hardened off. You know what hardening off is? That's a, that's a garden term. Hardening off is the process of preparing a plant to handle the real world after the confines of a, of a greenhouse. We're hardened in a good way by self-denial, poverty, privation. Now, you all have heard the saying, the devil's in the ditches. There is a ditch on both sides of the narrow way, and, I, and I'm seeking to, to be true to, to my understanding of the word the one ditch is the one we've been talking about where you think you have something great to offer God and you're doing it in your own power and strength. But there is another ditch and that's thinking, well, all I have to do is live my own humble life, little life here and somebody else can worry with saving the world. So we need to, we need to look at Jesus' life for balance. Let's look at this quote. 
Jesus was the fountain of healing mercy for the world. And through all those secluded years at Nazareth, his life flowed out in currents of sympathy and tenderness. The aged, the sorrowing, and the sin burden, the children at play in their innocent joy, the little creatures of the groves, the patient beasts of burden, all were happier for his presence. He whose word of power upheld the worlds would stoop to relieve a wounded bird. There was nothing beneath his notice, nothing to which he disdained to minister. People, that's service. That's ministry. Jesus spent his whole life in ministry. It's just that the first 30 years were preparing him for the last three and a half. The humblest and poorest of the disciples, <clears throat> excuse me, disciples of Jesus can be a blessing to others. <clears throat> they may not realize that they are doing any special good, but by their unconscious influence, they may start waves of blessing that will widen and deepen, and the blessed results they may never know until the day of final reward. They do not feel or know that they are doing anything great. They are not required to weary themselves with anxiety about success. Wouldn't that be nice if we didn't have to weary ourselves with whether we're doing a good job? They only have to go onward quietly, doing faithfully the work that God's providence assigns, and their life will not be in vain. So I'll share with you my personal conviction, and if I'm off, you can come and tell me, because that won't hurt my pride. That'll help my pride if you tell me I'm wrong. My personal conviction from study of the Bible and spirit of prophecy is that God calls all of us to a humbler, harder life. Thank you. You know, Jesus calls it taking up our cross. Isn't that the same thing? Then, if we prove faithful with the work that lies nearest, and if we have learned to put self aside, or die to self, or surrender to self, it's all the same thing, then... When God sees that we're ready, he may call us to a bigger, broader field of labor. If and when God wants to call us to something greater, I believe he makes that crystal clear. Like Moses at the burning bush, there was no questioning, well, is this really God calling me? I'm Elisha being called by Elijah from the plow. You know, we're told an in inspiration that many will be called from the plow as we get to the time of the end. So I'm not in any way suggesting this is a lifelong calling. But he's calling those who are ready to serve. 
Jesus being called from the carpenter's shop. You know, there's a neat quote that um, says when Jesus heard the message, heard John the Baptist's message, he knew that his time had come. And he hung up his tools, bade his mother goodbye, and left. It's now time for me to start my public ministry. Does that make sense? So back to our story. As I told you, 1997, the Lord put us on the Moses plan. He called us to leave our comfortable, respectable employment and do something humbler. He called us to farm. Farm, can you believe it? I didn't know anything about farming. And let me tell you, in, in 1997, there was no ad agra. <laughs> it felt like agriculture and Adventism was a forgotten relic from the distant past. Going to my 20th alumni reunion, never forget that. You know, meeting people you hadn't seen in 20 years. So how are you doing? Well, yeah, I'm doing great. You know, after graduating with my PhD, I went on to work for a multinational company as an executive vice president. And, uh, and, and what are you doing? Well, I'm a farmer. Oh, that's interesting. I definitely got the picture that people felt I'd gone off the deep end, <laughs> buried my talents in the soil, which I guess I kind of had, <laughs> and thrown my life away. It was definitely humbling. And harder? Boy, was it ever harder. Anyone who tells you that farming is for dummies has never farmed. It's one of the most challenging things I've ever done in my life. First off, I didn't know what I was doing. So knowledge was gained at a very steep price in the school of hard knocks. Been to that school too? In fact, I, we used to joke that um, we did everything the hard way. And sometimes it felt like everything we tried ended in failure. Failure. You know, in Mark 9.35, Jesus says that we should be the servant of all. Uh, for farmers, that all includes the plants and the soil. Have you ever tried to serve plants and soil? So what would you like to eat today? <laughs> would you like a little more water? Could I give you a little more uh, nutrients there? You know, and I mean, at least the plant you can see so it can kind of communicate a little bit with you. The soil's even harder. 
What do you need? I can't hear you. What do you need? Um, and, and sometimes you don't hear the response from the soil until you're, it's too late. It's very humbling because you realize how much you don't know. But what a privilege. What a training. Humbler and harder. You know, I look back on those early years with a lot of fondness. We felt our need of Christ like we had never felt it before. And our walk with him was very sweet and personal. Spent a lot of days out in the woods having business meetings with the Lord, asking for wisdom direction on how to proceed. This isn't working. What do I do? And although it was humbler and harder, it was also better than we could have ever imagined. You know, I've noticed something this through the conference when people share the Silers this morning, um, Alan devotion, um, and I've I've seen with others. Have you have you noticed that um, they tend to get choked up as they share their experience? If this is such a great thing, why do we cry about it? <laughs> It's, but I guess it's hard to explain unless you've been there how something can be so sweet but yet you cry because it was so hard. We're so thankful for what we've been through. And we're just, we're just now over halfway through the Moses plan. I can't wait to see what the next 20 years hold. But I, I want to make it clear, I'm not suggesting that all of you will be called to farming. I'm not suggesting that it's going to take you 40 years to smooth out all the rough spots in your character. Some of us are just slow learners. Um, he may put you on the fast track. I want, I want you to listen to this. I had seen this before, but uh, a sister showed it to me again this morning. The Lord can do more in one hour than we can do in a lifetime. And when he sees that his people are fully consecrated, that's really what we're talking about here. This whole humbler, harder thing it's to bring us to the point of being fully consecrated. Let me tell you, a great work will be done in a short time, and the message of truth will be carried into the dark places of the earth where it has never been proclaimed. There's hope. I know I've heard people say, you know, I don't think I can ever learn this. You know, there's hope. God can do in one hour what it's taken us 20 years to learn.
I'm not even suggesting that you have to look for something humbler and harder. You, know, you don't have to go home and say, okay, honey, let's see how we can disrupt our lives and make it really difficult. I promise you, you don't have to do that. All I'm really encouraging you to do is follow God's convictions on your heart. And if you do that, I can almost guarantee that he will call you to something humbler and harder. The reason I can guarantee that is because the devil doesn't do that. Right? When, when you feel an impression to do something humbler and harder, I'm not sure that comes from the devil. I don't know, maybe it could, but that's not usually the way he works. So I'm not going to guarantee, but I can almost guarantee that he will call you to something humbler and harder than you've ever done before. But if you follow God's convictions, I can guarantee that you will say it is better. One last quote. The subjects of Prince Emmanuel are not called to the enjoyment of ease and honor and riches, of titles and possessions. Do we have any subjects of Prince Emmanuel? I'm not seeing many hands. Okay, yes, good. So that means you are not called to the enjoyment of ease and honor and riches, of titles and possessions. What are you called to? A life of conflict with the prince of darkness. What else are you called to? To endure privation hardship, imprisonment, torture, and death. Man, I'm not even halfway there. I've just endured a little privation and hardship. Even as the captain of their salvation endured before them. You know, we don't have to go this way alone. There's somebody who has already done it. He's followed the path. He lived humbler and harder and better. And so tonight at Agra, I challenge you to behold Jesus hanging on the cross for you. Dying naked you realize they died naked. Talk about humbling. He's our example. Let's pray.
Lord, I just pray that I didn't speak any of my own words. I pray that I represented you aright. I pray that I'm not preaching false theology. I pray that each of these who have heard will prove all things, study for themselves, not take my word, but to make sure that it's your word. Lord, I pray that those who are under conviction will gain strength from you to move forward. And I pray that as they go through the trials that will come, that as they endure hardship, privation, that you will be close to them, that they will feel your comforting arms around them, that they will know with confidence that they are in your will. And Lord, may their light be a light to all those around them. And may it grow until the world sees that there are a group of people who are willing to serve without honor, without remuneration, without any of the things that the world expects, but that they're willing to serve out of love love for the people, love for you. So Lord, we commend ourselves to you knowing that none of this is possible without your strength, without your power, without your guidance. Bless us through the hours of the Sabbath, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.